Hi everyone and welcome to The Other Room. My name is Aurelu Aleshi or Ore as my friends and family call me. The Other Room is a podcast that features conversations with exceptional African women who are defining and redefining their roles in life. These are women who are charting their work and life journeys with purpose. We will look at their career trajectory, the challenges they have had along the way, and the things they have learned on the path to where they are now. I hope that my guest stories will help reaffirm that you are where you are meant to be, and if not, will encourage you to make important decisions about your next steps. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Mariam Aliko Mohammed. Mariam is an executive coach. She's also the school lead for Kaduna International Schools, leading a team of over 30 educators. Mariam founded the Maria Kutzi Empowerment Foundation, an organization that serves to develop young people and specifically those in domestic service. Mariam's journey is particularly interesting because she's had several career pivots. Welcome, Mariam. Thank you so much, Mariam, for coming on The Other Room. I'm really excited to talk to you. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you very much for having me. So tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? What kind of um, interests and hobbies did you have? Right. I grew up in Kaduna. I was born and I've lived in Kaduna or have lived there for the past 40 odd years. So I was a bit of a tomboy. I think that's the word for it. So I w- I'm number four out of, you know, eight children that my mom had. So as a middle child, I think that I was very adventurous, very curious. Um, yeah. And um, I, I was up to all sorts. So I'd always be the one on the tree or the investigating, you know, puddles or, you know, people. So, yeah, mm. I think that I had a very rich childhood, I think. So did you have an idea of what kind of life you wanted for yourself um, as an adult? I think what was what was important to me was to be happy. I don't know if that 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 is, you know, so growing up, my house, you know, my family house, my father's cousins, you know, um, aunties, uncles. So it was one of those, you know, big family homes that everybody was there. So I knew that, you know, I didn't want, so I had a lot of aunties too that were, you know, came in and out or lived with us, you know, different life problems, you know, being sorted by my mother and my father. So I, I had a pretty good idea that I wanted to be happy. And I didn't want to live, you know, a life that was, you know, the same pattern as people did, you know, predictable patterns, I think. So that was very important to me, mm. you know, but I didn't know exactly. So I wasn't the kind of, I want to be a doctor, I want to be this. But if you had pinned me down, you know, when I was a young child, I'll tell you that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people. Yes. Mm. Okay, so then by the time you were in school and you had to start thinking seriously about what you wanted to do as a career, so I guess Mm -hmm. about GSS3, SS1, um, you'd have to pick your subject. So by then, what did you think think you were going to do? At that time also, you know, it's your subjects were picked for you by default. So if you did well, 
you automatically sort of like get pushed to a science class mm. so for me you know then it has started crystallizing about you know being a doctor being a doctor and then i had an older sister who was studying to be a doctor as well so and she's someone i really really look up to so i i didn't mind you know so that that path when i got put in the science class i was very okay with you know being a doctor till you know i actually you know started growing up and i realized that you know i me and blood we just don't mix if i see it i become lightheaded you know <laughs> and so you know even now when i take the children to the dentist you know after the extracted tooth i have to lie down in the reception because truly i really get ill you know from seeing blood so th- when i realized that i knew that you know there there could be so- there could be something different i'm not going to survive it yeah so you know we did the whole wayek we did the whole jam and at that point i got accepted into uni just study medicine and um, but i didn't take it off then my sisters had gone off to england to school so i went off to do a levels and again it was in physics chemistry and biology and still you know nursing you know playing with the medicine or trying to see what it is that i could so i thought about biochemistry and there are all sorts of things but really I think at that age I was also not very focused in that sense. I knew I was going to go to university. So again at that time there were all these you know really lovely programs on TV about forensic science, you know, and you you know people were just you know if murders happened you could do this poison. So it was it was fascinating to me. So I actually applied, you know, um to do pharmacology and toxicology. and a study of poisons which i thought you know was interesting mm-hmm. um yeah but i ended up you know choosing universities based on campuses so i lived you know i did a levels in london for 2 years i didn't really like london you know it was just too much i think coming from a nigerian boarding school in the north you know london was just a bit too many people too many buildings too much busy and i didn't like it so i wanted to go somewhere where so i i i you know i got an offer then to do pharmacology and toxicology in um king's college london and then i got to an offer to do it in either bath and as soon as i went to cardiff i fell in love with it as well so yeah so that was where i went to and i studied pharmacology for the first three it was really interesting i really liked it um but then you know um So it was also good that my sisters were there. So when I was in London, I had two sisters that were also in London with me. One was studying law, the other one was in, you know, studying sociology and business studies. So she was, you know, so we always got together over the weekend. So either we went, you know, and of course one of my sisters is just such a mother. She'll cook all the nice food and everything. So we were always getting together weekends. But having to go off to Cardiff, you know, I think I'd matured enough and made friends. so it wasn't too bad living away from home was hard and you know at that time when we went off there were no cell phones as well so when my mother needed to speak to us you know or anyone in the family she'd go to nightel and then they would do this horrible dialogue process and you have you pay for 5 minutes and then because the landlines also were not working and i'll spend 5 minutes crying you know i should be asking me do you want to come home do you want to come home? i won't be able to say anything but i was just crying because i it was a totally different life you know i was glad for my sisters yeah so 
so how did you start to find your place um, when you were in Cardiff? Um, how did you start to make friends? Just go to all the freshest things, you know, oh, new students doing pharmacology or new students, Afro-Caribbean. You try to find groups, you know, to belong to. Whether, you know, so let's say, for exa- example, you know, everybody went to the African-Caribbean. And of course, on going to Cardiff, you know, my sister's friend, um, my sister's very, very good friend, Dobra she's librarian and she had you know she'd been to Cardiff so she finished the year I came in but it was really nice of her because she came back and spent a couple of days with Cardiff so shopping and buying all those things and getting my room ready you know Dobra did that um and then you know so we knew one or two people there people that were in the second year or third year that she had known from then and introduced me to them so you sort of found groups and stuck to people and as you you know you went along you found that they were not your people or they were your people or you found new people you know yeah so we 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 found that there wasn't a lot of Nigerians in Cardiff in that sense, but I think also you know there were all a lot of Lagos you know people, not a lot of people from the north. How did you evolve from there? You I knew that you know it was one of those specialist fields. So at that point there was no you know there was nothing like staying back in England. It never crossed my mind. I was always going to come home. I wanted to come home, you know. So it, I knew that it was also a very specialist field. Mm. And over the mm. holidays, when I got back to Kaduna, uh, we had a family friend. He's a professor in, you know, cardiology. Yes. And he used to do drug trials, you know, in Kaduna Hospital, you know, have drugs and they'll test it on people. And so I used to go over the holidays to go and join him with trials. And I knew that it was really specialist. And in Nigeria, pharmacology doesn't stand on its own. You know, the doctors are the ones that are pharmacologists, you know, so standing on its own was a bit difficult. So I knew I was going to have a challenge. So I decided to come home and do my service here and um, see how it is for pharmacology and then, you know, see what I was was going to do. And when I got home, I got posted in my NYC um, orientation, got posted to a National Institute of Trypanosaurus Triposonomiasis research, so sleeping sickness. Anyway, anyway, so when I went there, they had really no place for me because the people that did pharmacology were it was always part of something. It wasn't a standalone. And so the first time I got there, you know, the guy just put me in the library and gave me all their annual reports and told me to bring out a paper from it. Ah, I just said, no, no, no. I've not finished reading to come and uh, do this with this man. So I was not very happy. Then I talked to him about it, you know, really very nice, well good life. And he said to me, well, the only other option they have is for animal pharmacology, which is testing animal drugs. And they had an institute in VOM. VOM was in JOS. So this was me. So I'm really attached to Kaduna. Like anybody that knows me will tell you that. So um, my first to NYSE to Niger State you know I went to Abuja to see the DG for NYSE to beg him and say I've been away from home for so long I can't go to Niger State I'm <laughs> going to Niger State and luckily for me in that year when I was doing my service here the Nigerian universities had closed so there were only four camps nationwide so it was either Kaduna, Abuja, Lagos or Enugu so of course I ended up in Kaduna so mm. going to Vom by myself and then animals 
I'm not an animal person. I think if I was an African, I'll be that one. I'll be watching it from natural, National Geographic. I'm not the safari. I'm, I'm not. I'm not that. That, that person i just think okay animals yes we they just you know those things that should be outside anyway so i just and so I, there was just no way i was doing that and so i left and when i left you know i ended up getting a job in um a credit then they were all these credit houses i think that's what they're called yeah they were credit houses that were giving loans at that time and i don't know you know around that time that there were lots of them and so okay. a friend you know a, a friend's brother sort of said oh we needed someone's credit department so i went in there and it was just really harrowing i had to go and chase people for money they had borrowed and i didn't know them and because i was stranger, they, they made me go you know so the last straw was mm-hmm. that you know this guy that was running away from his house after morning prayer the manager now said to me that we had to wake up at 4 30 in the morning and we're going to accost him in the mosque and i'm like no i'm not doing that this is Kandina. i know this man i'm not going to accost him <laughs> on the way to the mosque you know so then the other offers were banking. Banking then was a very big thing, you know, was new. They were looking for people. And I just thought, I can't do this. You know, I can't chase people for money. It's not my thing. Mm. So, but then I went back and I, I, I finished that, went back and did an MBA. Because at that time, too, everybody was doing an MBA. And it was just a gateway to changing careers. So I did an MBA. And, um, yeah, so came back mm. from my MBA and um, joined my parents. You know, so my father is a serial, serial industrialist. You know, he's, he's oh, built okay. so many factories and has so many interests. My father is just one of those entrepreneurs. And so I started working for my dad mm. from then. But having said that, also after I left the credit mm. house, I worked for my mom. My mom, too, is a serial entrepreneur. I went back to mm. do my MBA, you know, because um, I just thought that was a gateway to different things. I knew that I didn't want to do the sciences in that way you know um, I think that the guidance that you know children have or the options that they have now young people is just amazing I wish we had those at that time then it was pretty straightforward if you were good and it's a science path if you were not you know if they felt you were also good so you had to even as a, as somebody they considered the science student you had to struggle to get into an arts class and I think that what science does, it just hones your analytical mind mm. and you're digging deep. And I think everybody should be able to do it yeah. because it makes you analyze, you know, differently. It makes you look at problems differently. But I don't mm. know that, you know, it, it should think that, you know. Yeah. So I think I'm glad I did the sciences anyway. But I had a factory that was an automated, you know, gas plant. You know, at that time, there were very, very few of them in Nigeria, you know, and we're doing it out of Kaduna. We get gas from NNPC and um, KPMC, Kaduna Kaduna Refinery. Or sometimes we bridge all the way, you know, to, you know, the south-south and get gas. But at that time also, my father had been, you know, other people had been managing his businesses. And my father has many, many interests. So they were just not doing very well. People were not doing well. And there was nobody generally to oversee do you know how businesses are if it's not the owner you know nigerians just run down businesses so it was run down and i was also very very confident you know 
I was going into I just come from my MBA and you know you know all that you know when you had an MBA then it's like you can change the world you know you know all the principles everything is just you know in the bag <laughs> and then I'd taken it you know I'd done it in HR and marketing but I'd also taken mm. a module that was business in turbulent environments and there was this whole lady was telling us about turbulent environments like Africa and mm. things like that, you know. So I felt very, very well equipped <laughs> to come and you know uh, turn it all around. And that we both went. I ah. So were you able to turn it all <laughs> I around? That, I, I, after month two or three, I knew that we both woman had gone <laughs> to Africa. She was just saying theory. She doesn't know the half of it. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, yes, to a certain extent. But I think that things, my parents also had a partnership. A lot of my dad's businesses were also partnerships. But we managed to do very well with Almo. But then the crisis that we that happened there was a partnership crisis. Yeah. The partner that was my dad's very good friend, you know, um, died. And he left it to his sons. And he had many for many, many wives. And so you can imagine, you know, that was their all internal struggles also mm. didn't help us. And at the end of the day also, um, my father just made a different call. You know, they wanted to sell the business, but they also would not give our own family the rights of first refusal. So it was just one of those. And my father would not, just like he was his friend, you know. Mm. Because no, he's not going down the way we, we all sold, so we divested out of that. Mm. I also, after that, I went off to work for government at that time. I fancied also at this point, I actually wanted to be a lecturer, so I worked in Almogasses. I enjoyed it, you know, I enjoyed, you know, doing the work, but I got bored very easily. So when things, you know, when so for me, it's it's I think that my own mm. thing is about mastery when I do something and I do it very well and if I don't find any other thing to innovate or it doesn't become interesting anymore, I just leave it alone. So I think at that point I was also looking, mm. I thought lecturing was really good because I love reading, mm. I love researching, I love sharing knowledge. So I wanted to do that. I applied to the Polytechnic in Kaduna. They would not take me, but then they offered me a job in the MBT. So I worked in the MBT, the National Board for Technical Education. Mm ones that regulate the polytechnics okay all the polytechnics in nigeria so i was in a department called academic planning okay and academic planning is the one that does the curriculum we're supposed to change the curriculum update it so we're supposed mm -hmm. to do all of those things in that department but i'll tell you there were only four of us in that department yeah and my ogre does the whole work himself. And so when I came to him, I would say, is there work to do? You know, we could ramp up these curriculums. We could make them different. Tell me, no, 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 it's okay. He's got it covered. And if I complain too much, you send me to places like Ilaro, like Aranamoda, like all of those places, you know. And I just thought to myself, mm -mm, this is just not working. Very interesting. There was so much we could have done there. But, you know, in Nigerian systems, I reached to fail, you know. So I left there. You know, at that time also, my father had another factory, roofing factory that my sister was managing. And she had, she didn't have an executive director, you know, and she needed somebody close and good because there'd been misappropriations, there'd been all sorts. Again, the same scenario I met in my dad's other factory. 
And so we worked together for over 10 years. Yeah, more than 10 years together doing that. And roofing mm. sheets that we're producing wow. were, I don't know if you know Nigerite, you know Nigerite, yes. So it was part of that conglomerate when yes. they now indigenized and, you know, Nigerians were said to own businesses. So people bought them and um, so it's an asbestos-based mm. business as well. So after a time, we just decided to just divest. You know, we decided to round up the business between me and my sister. We just thought there was no future in it. There was also no investment in manufacturing. And at that time, the banks were, mm-hmm. banks are just Shylock. So there were no long-term loans for us to even recate or retool the factory to something else. Uh, and our institutional investors were not ready to do so. So we divested. Yeah. And then um, I started doing my own thing. You know, I just started doing my own thing, which at that time, so with 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 working mm. with my sister, it's a company called Turners, and we our brand name for our product was um, Emmonite. And so there's Nigerite, Emmonite, Etanite. So ours was Emmonite, and um, okay. so I worked in a factory, and for ten years we had this factory that ran twenty four hours, and so this is what also took me back. So HR was the specialty of my MBA, HR and marketing management, and I was managing people and managing the accounts. And I realized that no matter what you gave to people, they would only produce to a certain amount, you know. So capacity utilization is all, always one. We could never hit mm. more than a certain target. So, for example, if we could do, you know, three trucks at maximum of goods in a day, you know, we always hit two. It was very rare to hit the three. And then the machines were okay. So I realized it was a people's mm. problem. So this people's problem, what is it, you know? And so that is really what led me to coaching. Yeah, within the internet, and I found coaches, and then I used to read a lot. So I'd found books with Marshall Goldsmith in there. You know, I found a few people that were coaching inner games, a tennis player. You know, and it was all about inner games. So I used to read a lot. So when I found that coaching then was sort of like gaining popularity, and so I went on and I did like an uh, an online course, you know, on it. This is like a free one, yeah. And then I decided this is really what I want to do because it started also changing me. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, I had my own challenges as well in my own life. So I started looking at it slightly differently. And I decided, okay, I'm going to do it from the international correspondence course was offering a diploma in coaching. And so I did a diploma in coaching. And when I did, I thought, really what I want to do. I love this. I want to do this. And so I searched for the best place to do it. And I found University of Cambridge. And so that was where I went and got, you know, my coaching certificate from, from University okay. of Cambridge. And then, so, yeah, so I did that, you know, over a year. I did, you know, wow. I, first of all, I did, you know, a speciality in the psychological dimensions of coaching. Um, then I did, you know, um, executive coaching. Yeah. And I also did life coaching. Part of it is an online module, and then you had to come together in the summer for a week. You know, so after every module, you came to Cambridge for a week to mm-hmm. practice, to you know, do your peer coaching, to do the reviews, and all and all sorts of things. Yeah. 
Okay, so then how did you start to get clients? Um, were you clear about the type of clients you wanted to have? So really my dream was to be an executive coach. But clients, okay, so that is a hard thing. Coaching is a fantastic career, but it's a bad business, you know, because Nigerians really, nobody pays you for it. So everybody would come mm. for the advice and everybody would do so. And then I was really, mm. you know, so you had to pitch your work. You had to even tell people about it because they really didn't know what it was, you know, coaching in that sense. And they are not sure they want to pay, you know, so we don't want to tell people our secrets, you know, you know, and all of those. So it's one of those things that you really have to be very, very, you know, you have to have a different kind of mindset, you know, to sort of sit down with someone and let them ask you questions and you really want to change yourself for you to do that ask personal questions questions that would really you know get mm-hmm. you to shake up your whole life and so so i was doing every type of coaching anyone i could get and mostly it ended up it tended to be relationship coaching but not everybody also so i, I tended to have a lot of maybe married mm-hmm. people having issues you know then i would have you know people their children that are not behaving mm-hmm. so well or they don't think so way i talk to her you know so I, I tended to have that and these were very emotionally heavy things and um yeah so so it was really difficult i know that at a certain point i was like i'm not going to do any kind of relationship coaching because i'd get ill you know when people tell me things that they're going through i really would get ill you know they're going through this you know you know and so it was very very hard to keep boundaries there so i knew i didn't want to do that so i I took on and then i also knew that people would not pay me for different things so i started training as well so i you know i just embedded that in in training so the coaching was you know if i train people then the follow-up coaching and i could introduce that but not as a separate thing you know, it really didn't work as a career, as a separate thing. And to a certain extent, it still doesn't. It just has to be mm-hmm. something else. Moving partly to Lagos, you know, it's something that will open up because really it needs a kind of way. You know, you need to really be concerned about your performance. You know, in the first place, for most people, you have to recognize that you could do better. You could always do better. Mm-hmm. And the enabling environment is always your mind. You know, mm-hmm. and that is enabled when you don't see barriers. So really what a coach does is just yeah. literally stand by and cheer you on while you find, you know, the best possible solutions for your life. Okay. You a lot of questioning and to get you to the place where you want to be. So we examine your reality, you know, what's going on with you, what goal you want. So, so let's say, for example, I want you to become Nigerian president. Okay, so, you know, where are you at now? Okay, I'm still a housewife. You know, that's your reality. Okay, what are your options? You know, I could just start, you know, from the grassroots at this point, you know, and so on and so forth. Or I could leave this marriage or I could move to Abuja or could marry a senator. You know, so you examine what your options are to what it is, you know, that you're going to do. So um, after all of that, what are your options? Okay, which Mm. ones are you going to choose out of those options? What will it be? You know, what do you think you can? And truly, by the time you question someone, they start their reality starts to, you know, their reality and their options tends to give them a direction. You know, so at this point, for me, someone like me, if my ambition is to be the president of Nigeria, really, by the time I examine my reality and my options, that certainly is not going to happen unless there's some real disruption. 
you know, and am I will cause the disruption or, you know, where does that fit into mm. my life? So it gives you, you know, permission to examine your life in a way that you may not. It gives you, you know, the, the space to do it in a non non judgmental place, a safe space. Because really everyone that you love or everyone that you interact with, they have, you know, an agenda maybe or utility to the things that you do for them. So for example, if I want to be president of Nigeria, I mean say for example the closest person to me is my husband he's not going to really like it much is he you know for me to struggle off as we go into the campaign so i mean as much as he would love to be supportive it may not be advice or it may not be as uplifting or let's say my mom now i say ah i want to be president and she'll be like ah what are your children now do you think this is how you should be as a mommy you know do you, do you get what i'm saying so family, family is, you know, supposed to be the most uplifting mm, yes. force, and it is if it's gotten right. But if it's not, it's also the darkest, you know, most disabling force mm. ever. Because, you know, the for human beings is that they need to keep you yeah. where you are at yeah. for them to, you know, take reference from. You know, so it's yeah. Mm. So it's it's nice that you know if you're the sister right. that does everything for everybody. Now, if you are the one that knows the market and you know where to get this and get that, you know who to call when this goes there. You know all the plumber, and then you decide that you are leaving. You are going to go to America to live. You know, it will be with a lot of mixed <laughs> mixed feelings for the people that depend on mm. you for all of that. Yeah, so it's so I think these are the things that That's coaches true. do to be able That's to true. help you, you know. Maybe if you like shine a torchlight on it and for you to see your issues and then mm. help you and share you on as you make the necessary adjustments. Unfortunately, you know, it's not something that is truly embedded in mm. our own society. You know, so it's just catching on and even if one is catching on is a more professional thing. Mm. So a a coach is really someone that takes your performance to the next level in a non judgmental manner. You know, it's a safe space. So you can tell me anything and I'm not going to judge it. Mm. You know, I'm not going to that ah, why are you thinking like this or whatever. I the best I'll do is maybe ask why are you thinking like this? What mm. makes you say so? You know, and so it it's you know, it's a very mm. So for me, my coaching journey, you know, um, made me a better person, made me see where my choices are, what is important to me at those phases in my life. And even now with the pandemic, I've had to go back into mm. the community and look for a pure peer coach for myself and talk through my issues or changes and stuff like that. And it's very mm. enabling. Because I'm not afraid of the fact that, you know, this person may think I'm abandoning them or maybe this person thinks, you know, or my husband thinks I'm not happy enough or I'm not, you know, those kind of things. Or my children don't feel I want to give them time. So sometimes when you express yeah. yourself on what you want, sometimes it's just your worries. It's not what you're going to do, but it's just, you know, testing. And so if the people close to you mm. take it to heart, it's mm. very difficult, you know. And you mm. may change things that you don't really want to change. You just want to sound out mm. your mind and, and so on. So, yeah, we all need we all need coaches. All right. Okay, so can you please tell me what the Maria Cutty Empowerment Foundation does for, um, for house helps and for domestic staff? Okay, so it was set up basically to, to just help out. We, we, we try to run a program that's set about to standardize and formalize, you know, that so in Nigeria, you know, over 4 million people, 
you know, the statistics are at that time, you know, when I set it up, this is close to over 10, 12 years ago. And, um, you know, yeah, nine, two, 2012, eight years ago. So basically, you know, 4 million people were out, uh, were in this industry, but it wasn't formalized, you know. So we just thought if we formalize it, then these people will actually do better. So we did Maria Cotti Evolve, which was a program where, you know, we had training for like the first weeks for the house help themselves or the domestic servant or uh, domestic help and um we did that and then we did also for the people we did agency as well so the people that wanted them we also trained them on how to be with them and the idea is that you know they worked for two years and saved enough money to go into higher institution so our minimum bar was that they could go into a polytechnic that would be able to um you know, give them a diploma in two years, they could save enough money. That was half of their money being paid minimum wage. Half a quarter will go to them and a quarter will give the parents, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, we opened bank accounts for them. We had health insurance. We had um, pensions as well for them. And we started small with a pilot of friends. And then th- there were quite a lot of problems that went with it, you know. Sometimes there, were, there was mistrust. The parents were not happy. We were not giving them all the money. Um, they too, they were not happy with bank accounts because this is such a process. How are we not sure you will steal our money after and so on and so forth? The agents that brought them were also was also not happy because they could not earn every month. They could not earn something because mostly you see that the agent comes and collects the salary to give it to the parents and they don't mm-hmm. give the show. So the agents themselves exploit and then the the people as well that we were employing some of them stole some of them you know had all sorts of issues you know morally around things you know we had so many girls getting pregnant you know and girls running off with their boyfriends taking things from people so we had all sorts of things and we had to look at it the last one was a big theft case that luckily because we were doing guarantors and financial guarantors it didn't blow out and it was also family friend Mm -hmm. but this young man that we took in that checked out very well put him on this system was part of a of a stealing gang, not armed robbery. What what is it called now? Mm. Um, yeah, he he was a robber, but not armed. You know, mm. so he used to go into people's homes, checks out very well, does well, and he starts. He doesn't go anywhere, but basically, you know, mm. people come to meet him in the house, so he steals things, and he doesn't go anywhere but church. So when he goes church to church, he gives them all these goodies he's selling. So people used to wonder why how things were getting missing. But that was what this boy was doing, you know, and he was so trusted because he was just the perfect thing. So we had, uh, you know, those things. We ran that for a couple of years. You know, we also even partnered with any directorate for employment, trying to get them to adopt that. So instead of teaching people um, carpentry, fashion, whatever, we tried to get them to do domestic services. And for a time, they gave us space in the directorate, in the training school, to have our people and train them as domestic staff. Because people, then everybody was complaining about domestic staff. And we did that, but these issues, we didn't have enough insurance to pay people, was getting bad. So we thought, okay, let's do it differently. Let's start advocacy where we'll meet people to pass laws that, you know, this is what we should see or form a pressure group or whatever it is. Then my own life too, you know, started taking different turns and I left it. So from that, that from that actually, I, I got recognized as somebody doing youth work. 
And so UNDP and, um, you know, at that time, HP Life were training people and they thought, why don't you just train them up for, you know, um, HP Life entrepreneurship, you know, give them skills, you know, to be able to open their businesses. And then I had never thought about that. I just wanted something workable. And so we got into HP Life doing that. Then we got also recognized by the ILO. Okay, ILO was doing something. Why don't you, since they're mostly girls, do gender things around that, you know, let's look at growing our businesses you know gender things what they could do and so on so that was really also good training we started doing that with them we started encouraging them to form associations so after church instead of just going to have a party you know we would have a space for them to say come and talk about your life what kind of work you're doing what you want to do and so on and then we now got into gender work, doing a lot more things with girls. There are more girls in that industry. And um, so then we now finally, the Commonwealth got us, you know, and just decided that at that time, 26 people from different nations to just come and really be trained about, you know, delivering an international or broad-based perspective on entrepreneurship, you know, in a different way. Mm -hmm. So we were trained like for 14, 15 days in Zambia by the Commonwealth about how to, to get people to be entrepreneurs, you know, and not really the way that, you know, you think, oh, I just have some money, let's do some business. So all, all of it, what could go wrong doing youth work? The first thing young people ask you is, please, I, I just want to start a business and all I need is money, you know, having to take mm -hmm. a step back and tell them it's not about money, let's work these things through you know boundaries you know copycat businesses so it was everything that you know we're seeing in our societies and so it was basically mm. eds services they trained us to be business development you know service providers and to train people in entrepreneurship so that, that is what changed the trajectory mm. from working with house helps to working with young people as a whole because the problem was really not about even the fact that they're in this subsector the problems for young people are similar, whether they're poor or whether they're, they're, they're rich. They have the energy. They're the only group of people that have the energy to change the world, you know, because they don't have anything holding them back, you know, and all they need is the right guidance, you know, to change the world. And we're not allowing them to do so. So this... this mm. So you started working more with um, yes. young people yes. in general. Yes. Okay. So okay, at, at that, I see. Mm. Sorry. And then you... Go on. So at go that on. time, I also on. met the regional, you know, then representative for Commonwealth then. And I got into different programs, developing young people. And we also worked with him around, you know, the Africa Youth Charter. And so it, it, it gave me a more holistic perspective. You know, this is a young people's problem. Mm. So it became very holistic for me. And then being a coach as well, I just realized that it's the same mind game. Their minds are not enabled. They just mm. think there's so many obstacles to achieving anything. Nobody understands me. I don't have enough money. I don't have this. And so it just changed the trajectory of the kind of work that I do. The thing that I tried to work on in the past couple of years is to have a youth center. You know, this is a greatly ignored area. You know, nobody has a youth center in that sense for children to, or young people to come and find a safe space to just be. Here we call them we call yeah. them creative spaces, right? Or labs or whatever. But that is similar to it. Mm. But here there's a lot of reference to creativity. 
but no this is for me a safe space so you mm. can come and just have a conversation and we did have something like that in Kaduna at Ilmi house a friend of mine came and wanted to set up a library and was interested in the arts I also have this program based things about young people and we set up something we did it for a couple of years and it was just fantastic but now I want to set up something but my youth center it's really I don't want to develop skills in any way I just want yeah. to build a mind. I just yeah. want you to just come in and be changed by the fact that somebody can talk to you and get you to the place where you want to get to and put you in the right space and provide the right support and give you the right direction. Not necessarily, oh, I'm teaching you how to make soap. Or I'm teaching you how to do tie and dye. Right. Or, no, because a person that is enabled, they go and look for those things that they're interested in doing and they'll do them with or without me. If they have switched on the That's right true. And I think it's very prescriptive to tell people this is it. Okay, so now we are doing agribusiness. Everybody rush to agribusiness. But it's not everybody that will thrive in that space. And we're training young people yeah. to be sheep, you know, to only look for obvious opportunities. How about enabling yes, and the yes. trendy things? How about yeah. Enabling their mind for them to see opportunity in everything. In everything and for yeah. them to be okay with those opportunities so if i decide that you know i really really would like to provide vulcanizer services plus you know i should be enabled to do that you know that's really fantastic i, I mean i can speak to the test the you know the the truth behind um the importance of the of having safe spaces. I mean, I've been to different youth centers in different parts of the world and some in very dangerous neighborhoods, but everyone knows, even if they're in neighborhoods where there are lots of like yes, gang activity, everybody knows that the youth center yes. is a safe space and they come yes. there and they're yes. loved and they're cared for. They can do their homework. They can take a nap before they go exactly. back to their reality. And for some children, that's the difference surviving, even being alive alive or dead for some children in those societies that's a difference between a life a short life of crime and pain and a life that's enabling so for some people they'll tell you their parents are alcoholics they're just they're that but when they come to the youth center there's that person so really that for me is my dream and this is also something i tried to sell to various governments to look at it if a child if a young person does not have a channel to channel their energies they will channel it in a negative way. So do things, you know, have a sports place, have somewhere where they can go and be themselves and this pressure is off them. And then they can now do what they do best as young people, yeah. have ideas and the passion and the, and the commitment and the resilience and the I don't care attitude to follow that passion and make things work. So in Nigeria, we don't utilize our youth the way that it is. So we're older, I'm older, and I keep telling my young people, you know, I have contacts, I have experience, you know, that's what I bring to the table. You have energy, you know, and you have ideas, you know, so imagine if we marry those, you know, what it's going to become. It's going to be a fantastic partnership because I can now, you know, yeah. I can mentor them, I can coach them through something, and they can build something that I can't even imagine. I think in general, it's um, a space that is very hard to find like funding for, yes. because I know even, you know, from my experience running a nonprofit, mm -hmm. 
funders want to see a certain kind Mm -hmm. of impact which is measurable and to say that we're creating a safe space for young people i think you know yeah that would be a conversation in how to translate that into something that can be measured because if it's csr they want to know like okay how many jobs do they get how many this how many this how many that and i say that you know the world is changing there's a lot of you know um qualitative research out there so now we're in a world where even, you know, the World Bank is talking about, you know, um, different types of indices, satisfaction indices, how many people are healthy, how many people are happy, yeah. how many people. So the, the parameters are changing, you know. And so we know that people that are in a happier place yeah. tend to do better. There's less violence. So in a society now that has become so bloody for you to even lessen violence, you know, or adverse effects, you know, it is something mm. that, you know, that is healthy. So I think that, you know, um, also for yeah. those of us that work in such spaces, the onus is on us to get people to really listen to us, you know. Mm. And maybe perhaps one of the things that I advocate, you know, yeah. for, for, for non-profits like yours and mine is the collaborations, you know, because the collaborations, you know, allow us to use yeah. a lot less resources to achieve more, you know, and it also amplifies the voice. So it's not only one person mm. doing this, you know, everybody's doing this and this is where it's measured. So Maria Kadi has morphed, you know, into these different things. And last year I realized that, you know, I needed to build. So I was doing, I, I was doing my mom's school. So that's also one of those stories that, you know, I mm-hmm. I left work for my dad and tried to do my own business and it didn't really quite work. And I thought it was Kaduna. Then I thought, moved to Abuja. I went to Abuja, worked for someone for six months and I left. And I decided I'm not going to work for anyone again in my life. You know, um, I'm going to work with people, but I will not work for a person unless that person is exceptional. You know, um, so um, I left that. I came back. Then I did Ilmi House's space that I was telling you was like that. And then I was trying to also find things to do. And my mom has had this school since 1985. It's an international school. And it's non-profit as well. So my, my, my mom has an educational consultancy mm-hmm. alongside my sister, who is an educational psychologist. So education has been something in our in my family. You know, my mother's focus has been there. And there were no head teachers. We used to employ a lot of, um, you know, expatriates. And at the time at which I was coming into it, you know, the Naira mm-hmm. jumped from 165 to 300 and whatever to the dollar, you know, and we found that every time we got Uimbos in, they were not, there was no transfer of education or skills to our people. They would come in, they would head school, and it was always like them. They were so apart. And I, again, as I told you, being a coach, you know, I don't know why Nigerians or anybody can do the work. Skin color or processes are things, you know, okay, skin color, you cannot change it. The fact yeah. that they've been part of a system that demands, you know, um, excellence and, and accountability doesn't mean we can't, doesn't mean we cannot, you know, do that for ourselves. It's because we don't hold ourselves accountable. So we made a decision with the board, which is like mostly family, to say that we're not doing expatriates again. You know, we, we must scale up our people and we must hold them accountable and they must be that, you know, as I said to them, this school must be the London in Kaduna, 
you know, they are not operating on that. I want my teachers to be able to go, you know, somewhere else in the world, apply for a teaching job and get it because they're competent. And that has happened. I have three people now that are, you know, in different countries that have been poached from me. So I feel bad that it wasn't very nice that they were poached, but I feel good that they were good enough. Yeah. And so this is what we've, we've tried to do to get our people to stop mm, thinking yeah. and accepting that they're mediocre simply because they're Nigerian. To stop accepting that there's something in Nigeria that doesn't yeah. enable you to do the things that you need to do. It's more difficult, but you can retain integrity, you know, and best practices as best as you can. Mm. So that's it. And um, because... Again, as I said, you know, my, my consultancy business is about training and organizational development and all of that, HR. So, you know, this was the first time I was going to be embedded somewhere. I usually go and consult and train and tell you this is what you should do, this is what you should do, this is what you should not do and go off and, you know. But one, it was like, okay, I'm going to do this for two years. I'm going to embed myself in this and then i'm going to you know put out structures and systems that are going to support you know them you know not having oyimbos who belong to all the oyimbo bodies but we're not just going to do it that way anyway Mm. it wasn't as easy as i thought of course you know i had more respect for those business owners i used to tell do this do this and if they didn't i'll say we didn't do it the way that i wanted (laughs) you know it, it still is a challenge but I know that what I'm confident about is that I've built yeah. a responsive team of people that, you know, when I say we are going to do this, mm-hmm. they just rise to the occasion. And I'm just so impressed and humbled. And I still am trying to build them up to say that you can do anything you want to. So in the beginning when I came, you know, they, it's a lot of distrust and they thought, oh, yes, some people. And I did sack people. That's one of the things that I've learned also to do very quickly and efficiently because you know if there are people that are not adding value you know it's best to get rid of them and work with those that would add value yeah. or it, you know and so on so it, it's been i i really like the team that i have you know i like the way they do things we still have a very long way to go mm-hmm. and this is the fourth year by the way <laughs> so uh, my succession plan is off you know two years but i hope mm. that you know i've been sort of like you know pulling back and pulling back <laughs> and they've been doing fantastic jobs so i think that eventually i will just pull back and then you know find myself in more advisory or board capacity while they do the things that they do so that's what led me there and um <laughs> so it's the, the stories just go into each other <laughs> The story is going to each other, but I find that all I'm doing is related to one Mm. thing, which is developing people and developing, hopefully, their minds. So, again, you know, with the Mm. teaching, we found that in our own society, you know, gender is also a very big thing. Women, you know, um, for for some strange reason, you know, the northerners, you know, um, so northern women are not subservient, not by any degree, you know as much as people think that they are not. I think what we are is extremely conservative. Yeah? Very conservative. And we're entrenched in our systems and our cultures. Yes? So within those areas of movement so like a lot of people say this and that and this and i look at i've looked at my own experiences with other people's experiences we just do things really differently 
it's not that you know um women are more their mm. voices are more how do i see they we just are asked not to use those voices not because they're not there but because it's almost like you shouldn't be heard mm. you shouldn't be heard it's not very good for you to make this noise and so on so again with the way that the families have morphed you know and have done very many things girls are not finding their spaces men are also in our societies have become something else have become worse actually in ways oh oh my god this is a podcast right they're going to hate me for this okay <laughs> no it's good to be so, honest i love it <laughs> the girls also are reacting so as someone that i know put it you know in her all and her whole anger you know women were told to do a b c to to do things well we're taught to cook well to sweep well to go to school well to do everything well and this we're asked also to be with a guy that has not had to do anything well anything anything well the best that he could have done is to say to him you can uh, you should earn a living and this living that he's earning is for him only mostly and if he's really quite good he would do it for his whole family Yes, but the, the 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 he has so much permission mm. to not do so many things, in a way that women don't have, and our girls are struggling with that. So you know where they're looking, they're now looking at you know all the things that are wrong, and they're not finding their places. The culture is not supporting them, you know, and so on. Right. They can't find their place. They're seeing right. different cultures. They, there's a whole movement of feminism that you know some of them can and some cannot identify with so they're in a, a massive confusion you know and nobody's yeah. really listening to them our culture is very much you know don't say this you can't talk to me like this my mom you know i'm your mommy i can you know so there's not a lot of expression and so we decided to have the boot camps mm. we decided to have a boot camp for, you know for girls and we mm. went across those that could pay you know we used it to get children that could not pay Oh, girls that would not pay. We went to orphanages. We went to different parts of society, churches, mosques, to identify the less privileged girls for us. And I keep meaning to put the videos up and stuff. And girls of different diverse backgrounds, but the things, the issues were the same. Where am I going to? Where do I fit in? Abuse is the same. Yeah. Rape is the same. It doesn't. It, it's not about you know economic, you know. Um, um, whatever livelihoods it's not that my parents are rich and my yours are poor and so i'm prone to more abuse or not you know so all these things are similar for all of them and it was such an uplifting fantastic thing you know that we did last year and i hope we were hoping to do it this year but then the pandemic came and uh, we have not so for me i find this pandemic yeah. to be systems over you know it's just an overload of everything I sent to a friend yesterday that, you know, everyone is in my bedroom now. You know, before, when you needed to see someone, they'll make an appointment, you know, and you go to where they are, you come to where you are now. People are like, sure. shouldn't be in your bedroom and your bedroom. It's too much. It's a bit much. <laughs> yes. It's a bit much. Very basic, I, yes. I love the fact that now people are more accessible, but I, I, I think there's an, there's an overload for me. 
So this throughout this week, I haven't, you know, so I'm rushing to join yeah. this webinar or that webinar or speak to this person or that person. So this week, I think the only thing I've done is listen to two webinars, had two meetings, and now the third one. This week, I said, I'm not doing anything. I need to find a rhythm to this. Because sometimes it shows up, I have five webinars at 2 p.m. Yes. I didn't even realize I'd all join them on the same day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, you know, this week I just did nothing. <laughs> Next week I'll be intentional about, you know, my space and, you know, my time and what I'm choosing to do, hopefully. Mm. That's so important. Um, I wanted to um, get back to the, the girls um, and what you say about society is so true. I mean, it's, it's rough out there. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, even tougher for young women who are still struggling mm-hmm. to find their voice and find their place. But then for young women who come mm-hmm. to, for instance, the, the boot camp mm-hmm. and they're coming from really rough backgrounds, they come and maybe they mm-hmm. learn to, they start to find their voice. They start to learn some tools um, that they can use to to figure out society and maybe where they fit in. But then after the boot camp is over, they go back to their homes. How how are they able to how are they able to continue? I guess their lives to um, but not continue as it was before. But you know, hopefully move on to a better place. Are also, you able to stay in touch certainly. with some of the girls who attended the camp? Yes, um, maybe so support again, them. You know, part of you yeah. know, So for me, I just have very very simple goals. You know, in the things that I do. So I just want someone to listen and to be changed by what I say or possibly even to light up hope. So I'm, I'm the worst person for CSR because my measurements are totally not what, you know, people want them to be. So, for example, you know, in my work with children, and I've done a lot of outreach students for schools, you know, teaching English to children or going into less private schools. I find that, you know, children in poor backgrounds, they always have to advocate for themselves. Nobody does it for them, not even the parents. The parents also, they need them to, to, to help out or the parents sometimes exploit them for their own gains, you know. So these children need to advocate for themselves. So the mm. thing is that you need to give them something you know, for them to, to keep as that lamp that is burning. This is what I want to be. This is what I hope to achieve. This is what I want to do. I want to be like that person. I want to be like that person. So our intention then, you know, for it, you know, because I told them, what is our overriding thing? What are we visioning? And so what we did was that for these children, for these girls to find a community, an acceptance for what they are. We had a girl there that, you know, her father was raping. We had one that sat and wrote us an anonymous note to say this is it. We had one that said that, you know, she can't afford to go to school. And one person that has a shop has said that if she sleeps with him, he will be giving her so so amount every month. So we had those. And then we had the most sheltered backgrounds, children that were in boarding school abroad, that their parents had private jets. We had the whole spectrum. And one of our most empowering moments was two of those girls that hugged themselves and and just cried and cried. And the one that had the private jet was telling her, you know, Agnes, I love you. I love you forever. You know, we've got that on video, you know, and she's, so it's for us, it was more the, the fact that these children would have 
light. They know that there is light because sometimes the darkness is too much for them and they don't know. They can't even imagine light. So that's it for them to imagine. We have a group for them where, Mm. you know, now it's not so active. Some of them, every once in a while, they will. Um, We have a way that, you know, so everybody that sponsored girls, we have the girls assigned to us that run the camp. So every so often we check up on them. So the people mm. from that camp that have, you know, decided to give them some skills in terms of, you know, maybe to teach them to sew and so on and so forth. So we follow up with those kids, with those girls. A lot of them need more following up than mm. most. And some of them have started calling us to say, when is the boot camp? We should have something virtual. But we've, we've, we've not wanted to do something virtual because we've, with the pandemic, we can't get to the girls that can't get the internet. Or don't have a computer and we will not yeah. do it without them it will yeah. just defeat the purpose we will exclude yeah. them again so we're hoping that if it eases we can now you know find a way to get them together through their sponsors and have this thing again so i think sometimes it's that you know you show a person yeah. the possibility sometimes they don't even know they don't know they don't know that there's a better life do you know they don't know. Some of them are surprised yeah. that when I say you don't have to have three boyfriends, or I say to them, why are you collecting money from someone to do your hair? Of course, if you collect money for him to do your hair, he will take liberties. You've said yes to something. You have to pay him back. You know. So we got down to brass tacks. We had men there. You know, we had older men. We had young. Mm. You know, a few, a few younger men. We had more older men to tell them the male perspective and how they see things. And um, it was everything, etiquette, how to be, how to greet. Some of them did not know these things. Some of them, you know, the things that we take for granted. So so for me, you know, I think that I have, you know, done my job when someone, you know, calls me and say, you know, look, you know, auntie, this person is trying to get me to do something that I don't want to do. You know, so it's not all in her mind. I can talk her through it, you know. Or somebody says to me that, you know, so how do you think I can do, you know, I can get her a scholarship. I can talk to someone, to, you know. So we all need that person that will give us a leg up, you know. Yep. And we hope that we are those people that can give them, even if it's mm. not a physical or an economic one, we, we can give them a push. We can we can light the, the candle and for them to see their way, really. Oh, that's fantastic. So I'm curious to know how you bring the different um, strands of your life together. Um, you're a coach. You run the Maria Coxey Empowerment Foundation. You're embedded in the uh, family school, Kaduna International School. And I'm sure you're doing other things as well. How are you managing to bring everything and do them, you know, with some harmony and um, I don't know about obviously competence or harmony. <laughs> but um, here's the thing. So I, for me, all of it is about learning and teaching. So recently, you know, I picked up something from my Angelou and if it says, if you, if you get, give, if you learn, you know, if you learn, teach, it's just all about teaching yeah, and learning. That's all that it is, you know. So if you look at all of these strands, mm. it's just about developing people and developing myself, whether they're children, whether they're whatever, to have a semblance of a life, you know, being human. In in Hausa, it says, you know, mutun means, you know, a human being, but 
to be a mutin, to be human, you know, to have that dignity, to have access, mm. to, to have agents. That's the word I'm looking for. So in all these things, it's the mm. same thing, you know, for us to all have agency for our lives. And as, as I was telling my husband yesterday, you know, as people that, be, uh, people that believe in God and, you know, we have a religion, it says that we shall stand before God. So, you know, how can you defend a life you have not lived? You know, how can you? So I think that everybody should have agency to be able to stand up and say, I did this and I did that. And, you know, God doesn't come down and do his own work, right? He does. And, you know, for me, also, I've also said, I'm not exactly the most religious person in the world, but I want to go into heaven. And so there's a, there's a way that you know there's something that they say in 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 islam that may you go to heaven without you know scrutiny for god not to stand you up and you know uh, defend your life may you get mm-hmm. into heaven without any of that defense you know may it just be an open door for you so yeah so i keep mm-hmm. saying that you know that's what i want I want, you know, when I get there for the angels to say, oh, no, she's here. Oh, she did so. No need for her to, you know, iron out her dirty laundry. and No need for us to do dirty bad things. Let's just laugh. So, yeah, that's, 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 you know, for me, I think that that's it. <laughs> wow, that's what I, that's what I love that. I love that. So, how, how do you how, no, yeah, I, I, <laughs> that's good. So, how do you distress? How do you how do you unwind? How do you how do you have fun? I mean, you you know, you spoke about these pandemic times, and basically, there's no line between work and home. I mean, you are working from home, and everything is blurred. So, how do you how do you take it's time really, out for yourself? How do you have like, fun? It's been hard, but I think that for me, one of you know, so I'm one of those with love languages that it's quality time. You know, so the time that I spend with the people that I love. So, yesterday we were talking with my husband. Said when I first met him, you know, we spoke, you know, for about seven hours. So yesterday we actually started speaking about something, and we didn't go to bed till two a.m. This was like eight hours. So you know, it's in those places for me that you know my that's where he heals me. That's what works for me. That's what fun is, and we laugh a lot. So I just laugh a lot and I listen. And I have two beautiful boys and that's the thing. You know, so being together, you just laugh and talk and talk and talk and talk. And I think that's it. So I try as much as possible to keep fit. You know, I do yoga. I do my exercises. I write also. You know, I write. Um, I try as much as possible, you know, to put things down on paper. I read a lot as well. Yeah, but I think for me, it's just, you know, being with people or talking with people or communicating with people. Yeah, I think that those are those are the things that do it for me. Yeah, so, yeah, I love just being with the people that I want to be oh, with. For me, it's um, catharsis. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, what? What what's next for you? What what are your hopes for yourself, um, for your work, um, yeah, for so your I life want, in general? I want to grow people to be able to do this thing that I do. I really want more people to be enablers of people. You know, 
Um, yeah, so I think that, you know, now it's a succession plan. I've done so many different things and I, I want people to continue with them because I think that is important, you know, to me. I want to find those people and I've found some and we keep together. I think that's important for me. I am, I think that, you know, ultimately also, you know, I want to have a university. It's just too much ambition in this, my body. But I want, to, I want a university and I want a university that is not very conventional. So I want one of those institutes like Aspen Institute, you know, or things like that. Yeah, that's what I want, you know, a thinking place, mm. you know, a place that enables people to think and, you know, do things. And I want in wow. a journey. So, yeah, you know, that that is, you know, for me, for the future. But apart from that, you know, I'm... I'm loving where I'm at, the people that I meet, the people that I, and hopefully meet more people, and yeah, you know, maybe write a book, I don't know, mm. <laughs> I, I don't have, I don't, I have grand, I'm, sometimes, no, they're just really simple, I just want to be happy, and make other people happy. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed hearing about your life story and um, everything that you've done, your work and your aspirations. And I wish you all thank the best you. for right. everything so you're going to be in the future. Amazing. You know, we've talked and talked and talked and talked. Okay. I hope people get something out of it. I think we should all do things that we love and things that we enjoy. And I'm really pleased that you're doing this. As I said, you know, it's really important, especially for other women that are thinking that they can't do many things. It's always inspiring. So, um, yeah. all the best. And I, as I always say, I hope that we get a chance to collaborate and also, you know, in doing my coaching practice, so, you know, if you know anyone that has any need for a coach, I'm willing to do a team coaching and a personal coaching for, you know, a person and a team, you know, just, just to get in it. If people are interested in this, just let me know. Cause it just, I like, I like people. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the other room in conversation with mariam aliko mohammed i really enjoyed speaking with mariam and learning about how she followed her interests and also took advantage of opportunities that came up and moved from one career path to another career. I also really found it interesting how she's able to showcase different interests and aspects of her personality through the different things that she does, from coaching to her work with the Maria Cotti Empowerment Foundation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a voice message and tell us about some of the things that you learned from Mariam. Also subscribe to The Other Room on your favorite podcast app and please give us a rating and review. Until next time, live your life with boldness and joy.